Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends, and welcome Welcome to this latest episode of the Bill Press Pod. So, as many of you know, I live in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill, a wonderful historic neighborhood. And a couple of days each week, I walk out my front door, walk past the Supreme Court, the Library of Congress, the U.S. Capitol, and down the magnificent National Mall. Yeah, but a couple of years ago, a good friend and neighbor of ours, Neil King, former Wall Street reporter, took a walk down the mall to New Heights. He walked out his front door, just a block away, walked down the Washington Mall, and kept on going until 26 days later, he arrived in New York City's Central Park. It was a great journey where he traced the history of the American Revolution in parts of Maryland, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey, and where he encountered, as you might imagine, some very interesting characters, some inspiring, some heartwarming, and some just downright weird. (laughs) Well, Neil's put it all together in what's definitely one of the best books I read this year. It's called American Ramble. Recently, I had the chance to interview Neil King about his great adventure in front of a live audience at Washington's Hill Center on Capitol Hill. Start us off page 11, if you will. Okay. Uh, when you walked out the yeah. door and just get so set the scene here. I will say um, that of all the events that might have occurred at the Hill Center, or all the books that any of you have read, <laughs> this book has the distinction of starting and finishing on 9th Street. So, um, yeah. and any of us who live on 9th Street, <laughs> um, we know what an honor that is. Um, so, the beginning of this book has a section called the preamble. I walk out my door. And then I spend a lot of time talking about why I've walked out my door and the history of the territory in between. And we'll get uh, to that. Uh, well, I'll get to, yeah, right. But I just want to get to the, the portion I'm going to read here because this is at the very end of that, um, that chapter. I set out that Monday morning, nine days into spring, north up 9th Street, eager to see if anything of an interest might crop up along the way. <laughs> As I turned a wave to Shayla, the Marine Corps barracks five blocks away broke out in a recorded rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner through the loudspeakers of the Commandant's Mansion, as they did every morning at 8 sharp. It was a brassy version in the style of Sousa, and to those strains I padded the first blocks of an arching path over rivers and freeways and farmlands to where the Hudson spills into that big harbor with Lady Liberty and her torch. The sun hung warm over my shoulder. There was birdsong in the trees. I had a skip in my step and a satchel on my back and could feel within blocks a little bliss seeping in. 
Uh, what, a, what, a, what a great beginning. So um, one word could wrap this up like for the entire evening. Let's not take that long on it. But why? <laughs> uh, it started as an idea right over there one morning where I said, what if I just navigated as a pedestrian to New York City and didn't take I-95, didn't go to Union Station, didn't take the Acela? What would the pedestrian of an experience, what would the pedestrian experience be? And um, so that festered for a while, and then I, I read more and thought more about the land in between and how others had taken that same trip. And um, by the time March of 2021 rolled around, I had done tons of preparation, and it became something I just absolutely had to do. Well, so the route you took, you deliberately decided you would not take anything close to 95, right? Very you good. wanted to go kind of yeah. the roundabout way, which you did. We'll get into that. Again, why that route? Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I come out on my street. If I took a right and came this and went down Pennsylvania Avenue, and, yeah. and I thought you about could. that, to go over the Chesapeake and then up the eastern right. shore of Maryland and across and up the Jersey Shore. And I was like, that would be a week and a half of ocean and Jersey Shore. It's like, no, that's not interesting. Uh, and the more I thought about the route, the more I realized I had to go through Pennsylvania. I had to go to Lancaster County where the Amish and Mennonites are. I had to cross the Mason-Dixon line on an important part of the Mason-Dixon line. I had to go to Valley Forge. I had to cross the Delaware where Washington did. Certain things just sort of fell into place that were must stop. How long did it take you to plan it? You know, in various ways, it took basically a year. I was going to walk out my door March 2020, but something happened. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't disrupt my life, by the way. Um, and uh, so I had to scratch it, and I decided to postpone it for exactly a year. So I walked out my door on the 29th of March of 2021. In between those two dates, everything unimaginable had happened, including a couple of months before, or before I left, the whole uh, insurrection at the Capitol. So I walked into a, a world that was profoundly changed since when I had originally planned to do it. And so it increased the number of things to think about by magnitudes. You took off for 26 days. Did you take a lot of shit with you? <laughs> uh, no, I took very little with me. You know, I didn't camp. So the fact that I was um, sleeping in Airbnbs and inns and things, I had to plot those places, which was not easy. Mm -hmm. um, so I went light. I had 16 pounds or so. I I had a fly rod to do some fishing. I had one pair of shoes. One pack. One pack. Yeah, it was not large. Um, it was, you know, I said satchel. I was, it was like Huck Finn or something, you know. How many, how many pairs of shoes did you wear out? Just one. I only won the more than one pair. Really? Yeah. The whole time. Huh? Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, I, we talked a little bit about this. I'm a big fan of travel writers, you know, and um, have read a lot of them, some of the old fashioned ones like, um, H.V. Morton, Eric Newby, or today's travel writer, Bill Bryson, yeah. Paul Theroux. Um, had you, have you read them, and did they inspire you? Were you kind of following their lead? Yeah, well, my list would be slightly different. I'm a huge fan of, for instance, Bruce Chatwin, yeah. um, or Patrick Leigh Furmore, who wrote a uh -huh. yeah, Both. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but... You know, the, the, the reading I did do that really did inspire me and kind of set the stage for the walk was 
the whole stream of writers that had come to the United States in the 1820s, 30s, 40s, and had done basically what I was doing, which is to travel slowly through an important part of the country to figure out this place. And would we last? And could this young country made up of all these languages and creeds and races and everything ever form into one union? And Alexis de Tocqueville was a famous member of that, that tribe. But there were so many that came, and I read dozens of those books. And my attitude was similar to theirs. I wanted to go out as if I wasn't already hugely familiar with the landscape and the people in between, which I really in a lot of ways wasn't, and make up my mind about various things by going through it. There's so many different levels to the book, which, uh, oh, there we go, um, that I really enjoy. I mean, so many interesting places you walk through, walk to, um, and learned a lot about. So many interesting people that you encountered all the way. And, yeah. and then kind of the big picture, so many life lessons that you came back with. So let's start with some of the interesting places. You talk about Lancaster Junction. To me, that railroad... Oh, the, the Hanover road. Junction. Yeah, Hanover yeah, Junction, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Tell us a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I mean, this was one of the things where I had decided, I had read how there's a junction, there's a, there's a train station. And this was one of the first rail lines built in the United States. I think it was completed from from Philadelphia, sorry, Baltimore to York in 1834. And in 1863, Abraham Lincoln took that line. And at, at the Hanover Junction, there's a line that goes this way that takes the trains to Gettysburg. And he paused there for half an hour or so. He was actually waiting for the governor of Pennsylvania to show up, which he didn't. And then a year and a half later, Lincoln was on a train that went this way and kept going straight on this very long route to take him then in a casket to Springfield for his burial. And there was something that was just fascinating about that station and the fact that those two sets of tracks diverged there. And that was sort of one of my pilgrimage destinations was to go to that station and think about those two things. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you also, Lancaster, I got that mixed up there earlier, um, and learned a lot about President Buchanan. Yeah. Only president, I think, to come from Pennsylvania. Until right. Joe Biden, if you count him. Uh, well, well he, I'm sorry, we're from Del. I'm from Delaware. Oh, we right, sorry, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. President Delaware, right, okay. We forget about Scranton. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Um, Buchanan, and then Thaddeus Stevens, whom I'd never heard of yeah. before. And you talk a lot about Buchanan and Stevens. Lancaster. Yeah, so one of the things that was great about the walk, part of my, the memory in the subtitle wasn't really my memory so much. It was a national memory, like who is it that we remember and why? And when I walked into Lancaster, they were actively debating who to rename the, one of the elementary schools after because they wanted to take James Buchanan's name off, he being the last president before Lincoln, and one of these doe-faced Democrats who was a slave-owning coddler of, this, of the Confederacy, well, would be, soon to be Confederacy, um, and a, a moral coward, essentially. And, and ever since he had died, they had meticulously looked after his mansion, and you could visit it, and the Junior League had been very attentive to that. And Thaddeus Stevens, who had lived in the same town at the same time, when Buchanan was president, Thaddeus Stevens was the head of the Ways and Means Committee in the House and was way more righteous than Abraham Lincoln or almost anybody else in Congress and was 
Lincoln's conscience in a lot of ways. He was the one who really pushed Lincoln to issue the Emancipation Proclamation and so on. And they were just then getting underway to sort of rehabilitate his house. And it's now soon going to become a museum and, and what it should be, which is like a civil rights destination. But Thaddeus Stevens is one of the great figures of the 19th century, a person of hundreds of times more importance than James Buchanan. And James Buchanan, at least in that place, has been held up until now. He's finally, rightfully, you know, they didn't have to tear his statue down, but if there had been one, I would have been fine with replacing it with, <laughs> with Thaddeus Stevens' statue, you know. You walked into the middle of this yeah. debate, yeah. which was really great. I mean, it seems that every, you'll, you'll find out when you read the book, that every city you went to, every town you went to, you connected with a town historian, right? Who told you the history of the place and showed you the places that were that you should you should see yeah, in terms exactly. of learning the, our history. Yeah, precisely. Right. Yeah. Gettysburg. Well, oh, I actually I did not go to Gettysburg. You're talking about Valley Forge. Valley, Valley I'm Forge. I'm sorry, yeah, Valley yeah. Forge. Yeah. So Valley Forge was was a really fascinating thing to me because so I'm sure many of you are familiar, but so Valley Forge, the winter of 1777-78, Continental Army at wit's end. They don't even have shoes. They have nothing but hardtack to eat. They're falling apart. The British have taken over huge portions of the country, and they're in Philadelphia all sitting around fires, and the Continental Army is freezing in Valley Forge. The Valley, what I went to Valley Forge, and I met an historian there who agreed to meet me, and she had written a book about what I was interested in, which was not that winter. It was when we decided to care about that winter. And it took us basically a century to care about that winter. And we kind of needed to have that moment in the late 1800s where all these various kind of Victorian sensibilities and other things came together. And we needed this symbol of grit and persistence and sticking it out. And Valley Forge became that place. And so it's, it's a fascinating thing that, you know, we codified, speaking of Gettysburg, Gettysburg became a more memorial immediately after that battle and 13 years before um, Valley Forge became like a thing of importance. Um, and it's morphed many times since then and now become a huge national park, which didn't happen until Gerald Ford, actually. But that to me was also, you know, I was walking through a landscape where we had been fighting over what statues should be torn down or not, and were we erasing history or not erasing history. And the reality is history is a very fluid thing always has been. And sometimes it takes us a long time to acknowledge that certain things happen. And the fact that some people are being erased or their statues are being torn down is part of that process. Right. Um, so there's so many other historical places, um, particularly Revolutionary War. You're crossing the Delaware. There was Trenton, boom, boom, boom. And then, to me, one of the most interesting places was the Great Mound. <laughs> the Great Mound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had, uh, on a drive back from New York down to Washington, I, you know, if you take the Jersey Turnpike, you'll see these things that we're not so proudly building, but we are building, which are these trash mounds, these landfills. And I saw one of them, I was like, wow, very active landfill. I want to go to the top of that landfill. So I sent them an email. A dump. A dump, yeah, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, quite a structure that we're building. And you can see it right there by the Raritan River. So they said, yeah, sure, we'd love to take you to the top of it. So I arrived there and, 
you know, I went up as the explorer. And it was from the top of that landfill that I got my first glimpse 32 miles away of the tiny, tiny glimmer of Manhattan. But, you know, I, I muse a bit in the book about how if you go to the Grand Canyon and at the top, you're in the present, and within about five minutes, you've walked out of all of human history and you go down about 1.9 billion years in geological time. The landfill, you started at like the Eisenhower administration and then you walked up. And at one point, I, start, I stopped, I said, where are we now? And the guy said, uh, about 2006. And I... I was like, wow, let's see, that's Enron, George Bush, second term, you know. Um, and then the present is when you get there and the trucks are dumping the stuff and it, it's not, it's sort of fun to make fun of, but it's not so funny. But it's just to see the immensity of this. This is one county's creation. Um, right. Well, yeah. And this is still an active landfill and it's very, still, yeah. And the guy that I so, went up with had gone to Ohio State University and when we're walking up, I said, uh, you know, there, there's this, this um, culture a thousand years ago that built mounds all around the Ohio River Valley and down the Mississippi. So we might be, we should all be aware of these these places. And he said, "Oh, I know. I went to Ohio State University." And he then started telling me about those mounds. And he said, "Our mounds are not like those mounds." <laughs> so many interesting places and so many interesting people. Today's podcast brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. One and a half million members strong. The Teamsters Union are America's largest and most diverse labor union. They represent every aspect of American American workforce, from vegetable workers in California, construction workers in Las Vegas, brewery workers in St. Louis, and bakers in Maine. As they say, they represent everybody from A to Z, airline pilots, to zookeepers. We salute the members of the Teamsters Union and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So you're walking along, you've got a water bottle, 
and your water bottle's empty and you're thirsty. Oh, yeah. And you encounter a very indif interesting individual. All you want is to fill your water bottle. Yeah. Not so easy, right? Mm -hmm. Tell us. You know, it was one of the things that really was amazing was that by the second day, it only took two days for me to realize that when you go out on a walk like this, where you have a destination and it's going to take weeks to get there, you start to experience what are like bona fide parables. Like, like you have encounters with people along the road and you're like, wow, this stands for something more than just this thing. And so that afternoon I was walking along and my water bottle was empty and I'm walking through this really rich new subdivision of these huge mansions that have been built outside of Baltimore. And this young guy in his 30s came down his drive and there's the big house and my bottle was empty and I said, um, do you have any idea where I can get some water? <laughs> was my question. I asked it that way intentionally as opposed to, could you please fill my water? And so he said, um, and he gave me these very elaborate directions to this place. It was like two miles away. And uh, I said, wow, okay, thanks. I appreciate that. And I started walking. And then he said, um, oh, by the way, I would advise you be careful. And I said, uh, what should I be careful of? And he said, well, there are going to be people in this neighborhood that are going to be a little wondering why you're just walking through the neighborhood. And um, I said, really, are they? And I, I told him then this story about this guy, Paul Selipek, who's now walking like around the world, essentially. And when he walked across the country of Georgia 54 nights, every night, he was put up spontaneously by the people in Georgia. And I said, um, so anyway, and I ended up walking away. Oh, but while I was leaving the guy, he said, oh, one thing. I just want you to know when I said, be careful, I wasn't talking about me. <laughs> I think you're fine. I was warning you about the other people in the neighborhood. And, uh, and in the book, I then go on to muse about our version of hospitality. You go back and look at any of the holy books. They all, it's about how do you treat the stranger who comes down the road. And, you know, in our case, we basically turned hospitality into an industry. And rightfully, I then filled my water bottle at Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> No, which is where you're supposed to get water, right? It, it never occurred to him to say, oh, there. No, and I, I didn't ever, you know, I kept thinking, because it took me like 45 minutes to get out of this ghastly place. And I kept thinking, he's going to show up at any moment, right? Like, wait, it just struck me. You know, there's some water. I've got plenty of water. but No, uh, never did. No, it didn't happen there. To me, um, one of the most magical moments in the book is when you're walking through um, the, the Quaker, the Mennonite uh, country, and you come to a, some kids playing ball, which yeah. turned out to be quite a visit, right? Yeah. You know, that, that was one of these moments. I mean, I just want to impart one obvious fact, but it, I can't overstate it. Walking is, you might say, 20 times slower than driving three miles versus 60 miles an hour. Um, it's hundreds of times more meaningful, um, hundreds of times richer. And all of these experiences that I had, not just, I mean, some of them were just walking and noticing and watching a spring unfold, right? I'd never done that before, like literally just spent a month watching a spring happen. But you also have these encounters that you would never have noticed. You thought, anyway, wouldn't, this wouldn't have happened. So I'm walking up a road, I look over, and I see beside a school, there's just a woman, young woman, she's like ninth grade or so, and she's standing there with a long floral dress on, she has a head bonnet on, and she has a baseball mitt on her hand. And then I hear this, this whack, and she backs up and she catches this fly 
softball and she hurls it back the other way and I'm like, what is going on? So I go into the playground and there, these Mennonite kids are in this huge game, two games of softball. All the young women are wearing these ankle length dresses and they are amazing softball players, like full out sliding into second base and the whole thing. And so at the end of there, they, they stop playing. They all come over towards me. Their teacher comes over. And, you know, in terms of the whole welcoming of a stranger, the first thing I, he said, what, what, what brings you here? And I told him and he said, kids, gather around. Let's hear what Mr. King has to say. And it was like, tell us what you're doing. And I started to talk to them. They were kind of taken aback by my uh, commentary about just seeing their part of the country. And then one of the young women stepped forward and she said, uh, Mr. Weaver, could we sing for Mr. King? And um, he said, do you have time? And I said, yeah, I've got time. <laughs> and uh, so they, they, I went into their school. We went down to the basement. They got on the risers. There were about 30 of them. And they sang these two incredible hymns of the afterlife, um, which was so bizarre because these are like, you know, 14-year-olds on a beautiful spring day. And they're, they're singing about their longing for heaven. But anyway, um, and it was the fullest, just most spontaneous um, like th saying of thanks to me that I had that I was there and that I had come and was interested in them. Basically, it was so extraordinary. And one last thing, when I was leaving, then all this hullabaloo occurred, and then I went up and I was going to fill my water bottle out of their <laughs> drinking fountain. And, and Mr. Weaver goes back into the class, and instead of saying anything about me or anything, the first words out of his mouth are, "Well, as you know." We were working on our vocabulary, so if you had turned to page 36, that's what I do. And I was like, wow, because they're just so, in the moment, they're just so focused on things. I was, it, was, it was phenomenal. <laughs> what a magic moment. Really. Yeah. So um, from the guy who won't fill your water bottle, tell us about Peggy Brennan. She was also one of the characters, oh, wow, unforgettable characters yeah. in the book. Well, that, I'll do, you know, so the whole walk, um, I'm this walking person and out there, because if you go out on a big odyssey like Odysseus or, or a knight or whatever, there has to be a dragon of some kind or something, a cyclops or something. And the dragon was I-95, right? It was like, how am I going to confront and deal with I-95? And so I took this whole arcing path and then I identified Cranberry, New Jersey is this perfectly preserved 19th century town, the midway point between New York and Philadelphia on the postal, the old postal route. And to the right of it, um, or the east of it, are all these warehouses, Amazon, Wayfair, all this kind of stuff in the woods. And then running between them is this brook. And um, I said, I had found, before I even left, I was like looking on Google Maps, I said, oh, I'll go there, I'll talk to the town fathers and the the historic preservation people, and then I'll make my way up that river, and I'll go under the turnpike by water underneath it. So when I'm talking to them this beautiful morning, and I tell them my plan, and this woman, Peggy Brennan, who's well into her 80s, she said, that's not going to work. And I said, why? And she said, it's not. It's all water. There's no room for a pedestrian, but I have an idea. And so she gets up, and she gets her phone out, and she calls her son, and 10 minutes later, her son shows up, and he says, follow me. And we go to his house. He pulls a kayak out from under his house. They take me to the lake. And like six of them, I get in the kayak and they're all waving goodbye to me. While I'm kayaking, 
up this brook after he had told me I was going to have to go over this impediment, all these trees would have fallen, this, this. But when I finally get over all of them, then I'll be able to go into the turnpike. And it was the whole, the fact that she concocted this plan that became one of the great moments of the whole trip was paddling up the Amazon, as I called it, <laughs> into Amazonia, uh, you know. Well, let's talk a little bit about the lessons that you learned. Oh, yeah. What did you learn about the American people? I mean, you know, I was never on a scientific mission to come out with a statistically accurate sampling of Americans that would lead me to some firm conclusion. But one of the things, and this is on the one hand sort of obvious, but needs to be said all the same, that if you go and stand with people on their patch of earth, their common ground that you share with them at that time, and have interactions with people who might be basically residing in another century or certainly have distinctly different political views from your own. Um, in, a, in that setting, you're dealing with a fully rounded person, right? With everything else about them that's not just three or four of their political beliefs. And I met quite a few people whose politics did not align with mine. But to a person, they all had other characters and traits and things that were just so amusing and funny to be, to, to, and so it was the other side that we've almost forgotten now that we're breaking into the tribes that we're breaking into. And, you know, one guy I met who was an auctioneer who had all kinds of pronounced views on things that certainly didn't align with mine. And he, he I met him in his barn filled with all these incredible vintage tractors. And he just then started telling me about the tractors. And I, it was, it was such a great encounter. So, you know, there's a world out there, and that was my desire, was to pay very particular attention to the particulars that I saw and to put out of mind the more sort of abstract things that we fill our heads with that fill us with a certain kind of anxiety or venom. And I'm not saying that's the real America, but I am saying to do that for a spell really opens your eyes to a different slice of the country. Um, I was struck by your summing up on page 340. The love you feel for your country can deepen along with the knowledge of the shameful things we've done. There is ugliness, but also beauty in the ugliness. What we remember of an era may reflect more than anything our desire to give it the best gloss. Yeah. Now, I am a firm believer, you know, I know there are certain governors scattered in the country that think they've figured out our, you know, the mystery to our history or what um, our, what we should be teaching the children about our past. And anyone that thinks they've figured that out um, hasn't given it ample time because it's a, such a complicated thing. But the one thing I do know is if you don't do the valley of shame part of it, and it's a long and dark one, and, and, I'm, and it's an ongoing one, and I encounter things almost every week in reading that I'm like, we did that, mm -hmm. you know? Um, if you don't continually do that, then you don't come out the other side to have a love for this country that is founded in the reality. And it's that the people that believe that if you have a shame for your country, then you're not patriotic, you don't properly love it, is it's just such nonsense. Um, I think it's exactly the other way around, that by acknowledging and, and fully absorbing those aspects of our past is how you have a better or higher respect for where we've come and where we are now. So every one of the travel books that we've talked about, including mm. yours, 
um, is a discovery of a certain country, a certain region. It's also a self-discovery. Yeah. What you learn about yourself? Well, I mean, twenty-six one... days walking by yourself. You had a lot of time. Yeah. Right. To think. I had um, some really um, amazing moments of joy um, along the way, and these sort of rapturous moments um, that I think came about largely because I just decided I would devote myself to paying attention and not listening to anything, no music, no podcast. And it had an accumulative effect over those days. And um, it really did become kind of a religious um, experience, certainly a very spiritual one. So that by the time I got to New York, I just felt that I was sort of glowing and um, and there was kind of a radiance about things that um, a lot of that is, uh, I still think, is there in a way. I mean, it, it's, it's a funny thing to say, well, you walk out your door. Um, the but, one thing I'll say... You've got your book there, because the, 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 you talk about that rapture, which okay. came at a very unusual place. Okay. I, walking right, across I'll, the Bayonne Bridge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, there's a, um, actually a chapter that's called Rapture on the Bayonne Bridge. Um, and when I was going up the Bayonne Bridge, I didn't. I wasn't really looking for Manhattan. It was right there. And when I looked up and saw it, I was overwhelmed by the sight of Manhattan. And it's. It is, by the way, you know, we've done a lot of disservice to this continent by a lot of the things that we humans have done. But one distinct service we've done is build the city of Manhattan because it is a gorgeous thing, you know. And when you see it on a spring morning, with the river there and the harbor there, and that thing we built, and you can go back and read all the F. Scott Fitzgerald you want, where he talks about and many others about that gorgeous site. And it was a gorgeous site. So I described here, this weird rapture, though, went beyond mere gratification. I had seen this skyline before. A thousand times over the years, I had caught sight of it from all directions as a cab driver and a common traveler. But on this morning, the sight of it physically astonished and stunned me. The days and all those steps had pried open a part of the human spirit that magnifies the potency of otherwise simple things and grants the commonplace a touch of the divine. Beautiful, um, yeah. Um, so the second time through your book, I suddenly said, you know what, remember now, something that really struck me once about Union Station. Okay, so I went back to Union Station to double check it. And there on the, if you're facing Union Station, on the upper left side of Union Station is this quote from Samuel Johnson. So it is in traveling. A man must carry knowledge with him if he would bring home knowledge. Wow. <clears throat> That's fast because I actually talk in here where I say, just um, the meaning to, you bring. Does that fit after your experience? From Absolutely, you? no. From, and, yeah. you know, I, I, to the extent that if somebody says, oh, ramble, so you rambled, how do you ramble? Um, what, what, what qualifies as a ramble? My thing is you pick a place that, that is important to you. It doesn't matter how far away it is. You leave your house to get to it because I think that continuity of of where you live your normal life and this place you want to go to is really important. And you spend a certain amount of time, preferably months, really, 
studying and thinking about and steeping yourself in what's in between, the stories, the travelogues, the who moved there when, the geology. And the more meaning you bring with you, the more meaning you get in return. It's, it's a trade. And it's not just the people you meet. It's when you arrive at, at the Susquehanna River and you've read a lot about that river and you know how old that river is and you re fully respect that river, it pays you back when you arrive at it and it gives you things in return. It's a, it's a transaction. The only regret is that we all couldn't go with Neil on <laughs> an American ramble. Thank you. Thank you. And there you go. The big walk with uh, Neil King. Uh, enjoy your next walk, uh, even if it's not 500 miles and 26 days long. <laughs> Mine certainly will be. A big thanks to Neil King. Uh, thanks for the book. Uh, there's, a, of course, as always, uh, a link in the episode notes of today's podcast for you to get your copy of American Ramble. Believe me, you will love it. Lots of great history, lots of good times, uh, and a great adventure. And then uh, we will be back on Friday from end of the week. Reporters Roundtable, which you love, we know. Three political reporters from Washington sitting down with us to take a look at the big news of the week. And again, trying to make some sense of it all, which is not always easy. Have a great week, folks. Take care of yourselves. Come back and see us on Friday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod, our Reporters Roundtable. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro. Cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.